Our great God, we come to you this morning asking for you to speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word with confidence that you will. Give us grace to hear, Father. Build up your saints and bring the sinners home. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine a scenario for just a second. I want you to imagine a new family coming into church. First time you've seen them. Mom, dad, two kids, smiles, clean haircuts, well-dressed, put together, just seem warm, nice. How excited are you to go and greet this family after the service? Pretty excited, right? Even for New Englanders, pretty (laughs) excited. Now imagine another guy comes in and frankly he looks like he hasn't slept well for about three months. Hair's oily and uncombed, Uh, shirt's got a stain on it, not clean shaven, just looks rough. And uh, it kind of speaks rough too, actually, you you heard the usher trying to usher him into a seat, It it was a busy Sunday morning and a... If you're not mistaken, you heard him say, you know, kind of in a little bit of a barky voice, I, I can find my own seat. You know. uh, how excited are you to go and greet this guy after the service? Is there a difference in your heart and your interest to greet these two different parties? Well, let's just say for a second that there is. Let's say you're excited to greet the first, but you're Less so to greet the second. Is that a problem? Does that trouble you? Should that trouble you? Okay, I just want you to put a pin in that for a second. And I want you to imagine something else. Imagine a church in the Jim Crow South where white brothers and sisters are greeted and ushered into seats in the sanctuary on a busy Sunday morning. And black brothers and sisters, however, are greeted and ushered into seats in the balcony where it turns out only black sit. Now, we rightly recoil at that situation. That makes our stomach turn, and it should. But I want to suggest to you that, that both of these scenarios are a problem. Now, please don't misunderstand me. These scenarios are not moral equivalents. Uh, the second is far worse. But actually, here's the deal. James is going to tell us that the same attitude, the attitude of partiality or favoritism, that same attitude of the heart is at play in both. And both of them are incompatible with God's vision for his church. So here's what I want to persuade you of this morning. Here's what I want to persuade you of. God's vision for his church is a people who love each other impartially. God's vision for his church is of a people who love each other impartially. Turn to James chapter 2. Before we get in, I just want to give you a little bit of context. Uh, Last week, James gave us a a topic sentence of where he's going to go in the bulk of the letter. And James says, true religion or true faith, you could say manifests itself in three things. 
bridling the tongue, he's going to tease that out in chapter 3. Rejecting worldliness, he's going to tease that out in chapter 4. And then impartial love for the brethren. That's chapter 2, this Sunday and next. And it's interesting, he specifically mentions there widows and orphans. You know why? Because they're representative of those who could be easily neglected, easily not be cared for, easily not be loved due to partiality. So just a teaser for where we're going. We're tempted in the church, just like in the world, to love the lovely people. Whoever we think is lovely. Whatever that standard is for us, okay? We're tempted in the church, just like in the world, to love the lovely, whoever we think that is. But that's not God's vision for his church. Look at verse 1 of James chapter 2. Verse 1, James is just right up front about this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So there it is. The command of the morning, this, this is the whole point of the text stated right up front. Partiality in the body of Christ is no bueno, forbidden. What is partiality? Let's just ask that question. Well, it's this. Doug Moo, excellent commentator, he points out that the word literally means to receive the face, which means to make judgments about people based on external appearance. So to receive the face is to, is to look on the outward, and it's just to make a judgment call just based on the outward. And of course, this is exactly what God doesn't do, right? You remember when, when Samuel went to uh, anoint a son of Jesse to be the king of Israel? God sent him to do this. And, uh, and, he, and he saw the oldest son of Jesse, Eliab, and he must have been a, a real stud. And he, and he looked and he thought, ah, this must be the king. But God said, no, 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 that's not the king. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Another way to think about this is, is, is just to think about it in terms of favoritism. In fact, that's how, the, that's how the NASB just straight up translates it. If you're in the NASB, it says, My brothers, don't hold the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So what's he saying? Oh, well, he's saying don't prefer one another. Don't, don't play favorites based on what you see. In a minute, he's going to give the example of someone rich being favored over someone poor. But this applies to all sorts of things. Things like skin color, dress, general physical appearance, socioeconomic status. There's lots more. We'll, we'll think about it more as we go. But just, just trying to define some terms, partiality is favoring somebody or not favoring somebody, based on something external, and that's what's out of bounds in Jesus Christ's church. Now just think about this with me. Why is this out of bounds in Jesus Christ's church? Because it's inconsistent with the gospel. The gospel takes man's distinctions, the way we tend to size people up, based on externals, and it, it puts everybody on the same playing field in the body of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, rich and poor, 
They're on equal footing in the sight of God. Men and women, equal footing in the sight of God. Jews and Gentiles, equal footing in the sight of God. Slave and free, equal footing in the sight of God. This is the essence of Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus, there's this incredible, socially uh, structure-defying oneness in the body of Christ. Now, this isn't to deny any distinction between people. Don't, don't, don't think that. Men and women are different, okay? And nor is it to deny any distinction in roles. Men and women have different roles in the home and in the church. So this isn't saying that, but what, what it is saying is that in Christ, nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's more loved by God than anybody else. And so then the implication is, well, then why would we treat one another any differently than that. So this is the gospel foundation here. If God treats us impartially in the gospel, then we've got to treat one another impartially. If God's extravagant gospel love is for all, rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, then that compels us as his church to treat one another in a way that reflects that reality. Make sense? All right. Head nods. Everybody's awake. Well, let's look at what it doesn't look like. Pick up in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or uh, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is James just giving us great, easy-to-understand illustrations. If you can't understand this, we need to talk, okay? You can imagine this just kind of playing out in a service on Sunday morning. Mr. Well-to-do walks in, incredibly well-dressed, incredibly nice car, and the ushers make sure he's got an incredibly nice seat to match his incredibly nice status. But then the shabby guy walks in. The guy who's clearly not all those things, and he's treated so differently. You sit over here. You sit down at my feet. Very simply, the rich man is given preferential status. The church is fawning over him, and the poor man is disregarded. Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Translation, you're showing partiality. You're playing favorites. You have regard for one man and not the other. Now, just a clarifying issue because I just want us to think clearly. This doesn't mean that everybody needs to be treated in exactly the same way in the church. Otherwise, partiality has taken place. That's not what this means. So just to stick with the same basic illustration for simplicity's sake, let's say a Let's say on a really busy Sunday morning, an usher asks a young couple to give up their seat for an elderly couple. That's not partiality, okay? (laughs) That's respect for gray hair, which the Bible commands us to give, amen? 
Yes, yes, I'm getting more. Or let's say Senator, let's say this. Let's say Senator Sanders or Senator Leahy come into our service on Sunday morning. It would not be partiality to give them an excellent seat. It would be honoring them. God has ordained them as rulers in our land. Peter says, honor the king. That's not partiality. That's honoring someone who is a representative among us. So, again, this isn't wiping out all distinctions between people in the body of Christ. It's going after a spirit inside of us that has a tendency to show favoritism to some and not towards others. It's this tendency in our hearts to love the lovely people and the other people, whoever they are, well, they're just there in our hearts and in our care. So does that make sense? That's what James is is getting at here. Well, why is this wrong? You've probably just got an instinctual gut reaction. Yeah, that shouldn't happen. And that's a good instinctual reaction. Reaction, but why? Well, James tells us in verses 5 through 13, and he gives us four reasons, okay? Number the first one, it's inconsistent with God's love. It's inconsistent with God's love. Verse 5 says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. So there's this inconsistency in God's treatment of the poor and your treatment of the poor. How has God treated the poor? He's chosen to be rich in faith and an heir of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, it means that God's honored him. God's dignified him. God's exalted him. That's how God's treated him. But, but what have your actions done? Well, your actions have done the opposite. You, you've dishonored him. So that, that's just inconsistent. What you're doing doesn't reflect what God has done. There's just several lovely truths right here in this text. One of them is just God's love for the unlovely. I think of 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. Let, let the verses just ring in your ears. Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The truth is, God chooses to favor those whom man tends to disfavor. He sets his love in the gospel upon people that we often wouldn't. Jesus sat down with that Samaritan, with that Samaritan woman, with that Samaritan woman who was a serial adulterer. Jesus called Zacchaeus, that dirty, rotten philanderer who was rich. Jesus called Paul, that religious zealot who dragged off Christians to court. 
God in the gospel shows love to those we wouldn't tend to show love towards. And the wild thing is this. We, we are so spiritually stupid sometimes. The thing is, all of us in Adam are the unlovely people. All of us are poor, spiritually speaking. All of us walk into the sanctuary. Oh, watch out. Get whoosh. All of us walk into the sanctuary of God's world with tattered garments stained by sin. With oily hair because we can't clean ourselves up. With gruff words because what's in our heart is dark and so it can't help but to come out. That's the picture of not some of us. All of us. Okay? And our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, left the glory of heaven, came to earth, died on the cross, rose again so that we can have life. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So the reality is, spiritually speaking, we're all that poor man. It's okay, Steve, thanks. And God, through Christ, has made us rich. How can we act towards others in any other way? We can't. It's just, it's just inconsistent with God's love. Second reason James points out is that this is actually inconsistent with God's love. This is inconsistent with God's... I'm, I'm sorry. The second reason James points out is that this is also inconsistent with common sense. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by the which you are called? James is shocked at their, spiritual, at their partiality, not just on spiritual terms, but on common sense terms. So just think about this for a second. He writes to many Christians who are themselves poor. Now, they're not all poor. He does exhort the rich brethren in chapter 1. But this was the church of Jerusalem that had to flee from persecution so they've had to flee from hearth and home. They're, they're scattered. They're essentially refugees trying to resettle. And so what does that mean? Well, it means societally speaking, they're in a weak position. And those who societally speaking are in a weak position can always be easily taken advantage of by those who are in a strong position. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? You, you can imagine a, a poor Christian day laborer, the wealthy landowner hasn't paid him. He seeks justice, but the landowner, using his wealth and influence with the courts, secures a favorable verdict against him. It's terrible, but it happens. Why then, James says, Christian, would you, would you turn around and show favoritism towards the rich? That, that just doesn't even make any sense, he says. Now, please be clear. James isn't advocating an attitude like, well, the rich have oppressed you, so just give it back to them. No, no, he's not, he's not doing that at all. He, he's just continuing to advocate impartial love here, and he's doing it on the basis of a common sense argument. But then the third reason he brings up is the biggest reason. The biggest reason partiality in the body of Christ is so wrong is that it's inconsistent with the second great commandment. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So why is partiality in the body of Christ so wrong? Because it violates the second great commandment. What's the first great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? What's the second? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Partiality in the body of Christ is a violation of that commandment. So when we show favoritism towards one above another, that's a violation of that commandment. And if we violate that commandment, then we're convicted by the law as transgressors. What does that mean? It means we're breaking God's law. And don't be tempted to say, well, I'm just breaking one of God's laws. We might be tempted to say that. But that doesn't help you. Because breaking one of God's laws still means you're accountable. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Example... For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. James is telling us we've got to be doers of the word, right? Chapter 1, whoever looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, I I actually just want to step aside for just a second and I want to make it clear to you why I keep on emphasizing that this is talking about relationships within the body of Christ. So follow me for just a second. Counter to your gut instinct, when the Bible talks about your neighbor, that actually means your brother or sister in Christ. I want you to follow me for just a second because this probably isn't what you think right off the bat. If you look at the context of neighbor in the Old Testament, it was clearly those who were within the covenant community of Israel. Neighbor was a fellow Israelite. Neighbor was not an Amorite, a Hittite, a Canaanite, a Perizzite. Now the Israelites had responsibility towards those guys, but their responsibility towards those folks paled in comparison to their responsibility towards their brothers, their neighbors. Now, when you come to the New Testament, the writers use neighbor the same way. It's those who are part of the covenant community, the church. Consider just a few texts with me. First of all, just turn to James chapter 4. You're right there in James 2. Turn to James 4. James 4, 11 and 12. Look at 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and a judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, did you see how those two terms are equated and they're used synonymously? 
Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. There's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Neighbor equals brother. Brother equals neighbor, according to James 4.11. Paul uses it the same way. Romans 15.1, right after he's been hammering home how Christians with differing convictions are to treat one another, he says this. Romans 15.1, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it for you, but you could write it down, look at it later. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He's talking about relationships within the body of Christ and how we're to treat certain brothers with certain convictions and other brothers with other convictions and dwell one another in a way that promotes unity. He says we've got an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, for his building up. You see, we're to build up our neighbor. We're to build up our brother. Neighbor equals brother. Same thing in Galatians 5.13. He says this, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So he's talking about brothers and serving one another. And he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you be not consumed by one another. Neighbor and brother are being used synonymously right there. Same thing in Ephesians as well. Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor... Why? For we are members one of another. Neighbors are part of the body of Christ. Neighbors are members of the body of Christ. And so we must speak the truth with our neighbors, with our members, with our brothers. Can I just level with you for a second? The only text that makes you even think that neighbor is possibly... Anything other than your brother or sister in Christ is the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the only one. Now the reality is, I don't have time to walk through that parable this morning, but suffice it to say, it's not inconsistent with anything I've said here. And I'd actually refer you to a sermon that I preached on this exact topic. It was while we were in Deuteronomy a few years back. The second great commandment is the title of the sermon. Preached it on November 29th, 2020. I would encourage you to take a listen. Okay? Now, why do I take time to go over this? I mean, this just seems awfully theologically picky of me. It could seem like I'm trying to get out of something. I assure you, I am not. I take time to go over this, brothers and sisters. Listen to me. Because your eternal destiny whether you end up in heaven or in hell, actually depends on whether or not you fulfill the two great commandments. This leads me to the third reason why partiality in the body of Christ is wrong. It's because it's a violation of that second great commandment and it leads to judgment. Look at verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this is kind of a wordy statement. 
me just simplify it for you. The basic idea is that we will be held accountable for whether or not we fulfilled the two great commandments of the law of God. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? It's the law of God. And Jesus said the law of God is summed up in two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And we're going to be judged based upon whether or not we've done that. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. In context, the one who has not shown mercy is the one who has not loved the unlovely. Isn't this the same thing Jesus said? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, reading from Matthew 25, follow me. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked or clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The least of these, My brothers. Who are Jesus' brothers? Those who have faith in Him. The church. To those who cared for, to those who impartially love, the least of Jesus' brothers, the widow, the orphan, the poor, they show themselves to have fulfilled the second great commandment and thus they will enter into eternal life. Now, please also be clear, this is not inconsistent with the truth that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But it is to say that God's gracious acceptance to us in the gospel does not end our obligation to obey him. God's gracious acceptance to us in the gospel does not end our obligation to obey him. It just puts us on different footing. God's law doesn't come to us anymore as a crushing standard that we can't meet. His law comes to us as a law of liberty. A law we keep because we've been liberated from the penalty of sin and and the power of sin. And he's given us his spirit so we have power to obey his will. To use James' own words from earlier, this is now a law that is an implanted word. It's been written on our heart and therefore we will keep it. We will fulfill it. We will do what it commands and thus we will be saved on the final day. It is the doers of the word that will be saved. And not because we've done it. Our obedience is not the ground of our salvation. 
but because by our doing, we show ourselves to be united to Jesus Christ by faith. Our doing evidences our faith. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Those who do not impartially love the brethren will be judged. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Those who do impartially love the brethren will not be judged. Now I want to clarify for you. I am not trying to wiggle out out of obligations to our responsibility to the world at large. I'm not trying to say, you know what? How, it, it doesn't matter how you act in the public sphere, it just dep- as long as you love each other. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what James is saying. How you act and treat others in the church should absolutely be reflected in how you act and treat others in every sphere of life, wherever you are. If you're impartial here, you should be impartial out there. But God is particularly concerned, brothers and sisters, in how we treat each other in this room. God is particularly concerned in how we treat members of his body. You know why? Because the church is the city set on a hill. His church is the display of the gospel to a dying, wretched, sin-sick world full of people who treat one another badly. And he wants the world to see his goodness and his character and his gospel love for all. He wants that to be on bright display through a people who love each other impartially. Even though they're crazy different. So how can we make sure we're walking this out here in this church? You know, the temptation is to look at this text and just to be thankful that we're not like these people. We're not classists that are going to walk in and say to the rich guy, you can sit up here. First of all, nobody wants to be in the front. Can I get an amen? I mean, it's like SeaWorld and it's the Shamu section. I mean, I, I feel literally, right? Uh, and then I shoo away people that try to help me. So why would you sit up front? But the reality is we are just like these people. We are flesh and blood and we have the same temptations and the same opportunities to sin and to let the culture around us define us more than God's word. And so we can be susceptible to the same things they were. So here's my starting point this morning as we think about applying this to our church or the church in general. Here's my starting point. The church writ large can be susceptible to all the same workings of partiality as the world. So whatever's going on in the world, just in church history, tends to find its way into the church. Okay? So the church writ large can be susceptible to all the same workings of partiality as the world at large. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So I think it would be appropriate for us to identify various avenues where we might be tempted to this sin and warn against it. So how might partiality find its way into our life at RGC? 
I think there are all sorts of possibilities. Some more likely to affect us than others. First of all, it might be possible for there to be partiality amongst us based upon the type of work. Blue-collar workers, white-collar workers. Would it be possible for there to be some partiality or favoritism to one or another? I know some of you blue-collar workers have at times felt like there actually is some of that. I want you to know I'm pretty concerned about that as your pastor. We don't want that to be the case. It certainly could be. How about this? There, there could be partiality just along the lines of, of intellect. You know, you got, you got book smart folk. You got street smart folk. You got folk that may not, be, may not be very smart at all. There could be some partiality that, that works its way out in the life of the church just to base, based upon that or the perception of that. How about financial status? There, there could be partiality in Redeeming Grace Church over financial status. Those who are well-to-do and those who are less well-to-do. How about cultural status? Or seeming significance with work? You know, you, got, you have influencers today in the social media world. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm almost grateful that I think most social media references are just almost lost on our entire church. I think that's a blessing. You have influencers, you have country bumpkins, right? Uh, there could be the possibility of partiality based upon kind of personality types. You have extroverts, you have introverts. Is it possible that there's favoritism in the church kind of based on those things? Uh, There is certainly the possibility for favoritism along the lines of racism in the church. It's there in the culture. It could certainly be here. We could could see possibly uh, the ideas of ethnic vainglory. You think your tribe or tongue is better than some other tribe or tongue. There could be ethnic enmity. You think you really just don't like somebody else's tribe or tongue. Or there could be ethnic envy. You know, you're actually longing to be somebody else's tribe or tongue that you're not. Those are some biblical definitions of racism that I think we would do well to reflect on and to fill in the idea of racism with biblical ideas. There could be ethnic vainglory here. There could be ethnic enmity here. There could be ethnic envy here. Now, on the other side of the fence... I would also say the so-called social justice in today's world, built largely on the foundation of something called critical theory, which finds its way out in critical race theory, is guilty of partiality in its differing treatment of people based purely on their racial and ethnic identity. So that's actually guilty of partiality too. There could be partiality in the church based upon those who are dressed poorly versus those who are well-dressed. Now, again, we're in New England, so I think you could come in in your PJs and no one would think the less of you, but, you know. (laughs) How about speech? Poorly spoken? Articulate well. There could be 
partiality or favoritism there. You know what? There could be partiality based on display, based upon those who we invite over or who we try to, def- to, to befriend. Do we, do we only invite over, do we only befriend those who we think are, are, are like us or would like our house or would feel comfortable with us or we would feel comfortable with them? There could be partiality there. By the way, that's why we try to, try to put all sorts of different people in home groups together to where it makes it clear the only thing that really unites us is the gospel. There could be partiality on display in those we evangelize. The opposite would be Jonah. <laughs> Jonah, go share the gospel with the Ninevites. No, I don't want you to be merciful and kind to those worthless people. Okay, I'll have you swallowed by a fish. Fine. He goes and evangelizes. God's merciful and gracious and they respond to the gospel. And then he's mad. Gosh. There could be partiality in our midst concerning who we want to evangelize and who we want to show the mercy of the gospel towards. We may not like certain people. God can save them, but just don't save them through me. Reality is we tend to gravitate towards, I've said it, but I'm going to say it again because I just think it's helpful. We tend to gravitate towards the beautiful people. Whoever that is for you. But in the gospel, here's what's awesome. In the gospel, we're all the beautiful people. And I don't mean that in some lame self-help therapy way. I mean it in a true, theologically, Robust way. We're all beautiful because Jesus is beautiful and we are in him. Amen? We, we tend to gravitate towards those who are like us. There's the saying, birds of a feather flock together. But do you know what happens in the gospel? In the gospel, it tells us we are all birds of a feather. And so let's flock together. That sounds kind of funny. But it's true. You identify with people who are like you, but the gospel says we are all like each other. We're sinners saved by grace. And the things which make us different are not even as big, as, and they shouldn't be, and they're not as significant as that which unifies us, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's endeavor to live out this radical gospel love God displaying his mercy and his grace to all types of different people, not favoring one over another. Let's endeavor to live that out here in our relationships, in how we think and consider and love one another. And then as we go out, let's live it out in our workplace and in the world. That will display the beauty of the gospel when Christ's people live and love impartially. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that you have saved us. And we thank you that you continue to transform us. Help us, Father, to continue to live our lives increasingly in the light of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.